Welcome back to the Esoteric Book Club. Tonight, I have an interview with author Catherine Heath, the author of Elves, Witches, and Gods, a newly released book from Llewellyn Publications. Hello, Catherine. Hello, Jason. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Okay, to start out, could you tell everyone a bit about who you are? Oh, my word. Um, so, as Jason said, I'm Catherine Heath. I am originally from the northwest of England, a county called Lancashire, but I've been living in the States for about 10 years now, and I lived in a bunch of countries before that. This is my seventh country. Very nomadic, yeah, very much into things like spinning and knitting and weaving. I've been doing witchcraft since the 90s, and I first met heathen gods in the 90s as well, so it all kind of went from there. Actually, the connection to spinning makes a lot more sense considering what we were speaking about before we started recording. Yeah. And how you grew up on the moorlands and it's very uh, it's it's very useful ground for shepherds and sheep herding. Oh yeah, and my mom's family, we we have actually managed to trace them back quite a ways and they were they were spinners and weavers and sheep farmers all the way back into like the 1600s at least. Oh my. Oh yeah, yeah. And they used to live in a, a village called um, Much Hool, which translates as Big Hovel. So I'm from classy people. <laughs> <laughs> so you said you've been doing magic and heathen, uh, working with the heathen gods since about the 90s, correct? Yeah. How did you begin doing that? Oh God. Um, okay, so I grew up in a spiritualist family, which is kind of like necromancy, but with optional Jesus. <laughs> um <laughs> And um, like my dad's family has been doing that for like three generations. And I always kind of, I, I always saw things. I always had things coming in my room. I always felt very unprotected as a, as a kid because spiritualists have a certain way of handling things and it didn't suit me. I didn't feel protected enough. At around about the age of 11, I found a book on Norse myths at the, uh, at the little library in our classroom at school. I started to read them. I went home and I prayed to Odin, Frigga and Balder. <laughs> and uh, I have no idea why. I just kind of felt something in the uh, the words. A few more years passed by. I found some books on witchcraft in the library. And I was like, oh, hey, here are some tools for, uh, for dealing with the craziness of my life. So then I started to um, work with witchcraft as well. And um, as time went on, you know, the, the Norse and the uh, the witchcraft just kind of merged. By about 1997, which is when we first got the internet, I, I still had to travel like half an hour to go use the internet because where I'm from is pretty backwards. Um, but yeah, that's when I found out that there were other people who worship the, uh, the Norse and Germanic gods and that, you know, hey, there's all these witches as well. This is really cool. So kind of went from there. You were talking about how you began in witchcraft. How did you start to narrow it down to more heathen-centric? I guess where you started researching traditional heathen magic. Oh man, that is a hell of a question. Um, probably around about um, 2005, was uh, I started to do a really deep dive in the, the Norse sources because I had greater access to sources. So then I was like, oh wait, this bit's cool and this bit's cool. So then I started to think, okay, well, why don't I start experimenting with some of the things that are, um, are described in the lore? 
you know, the one thing that kind of got me hooked on it was a description of uh, people going into the mound mm. and dying like they were alive before. I think it was a Hel- Helgi Hundingsbanny stories. And, you know, the what like the I can't remember who it was, like one of the Valkyries, she like her, her guy dies and she wants to go into the mound. But people are like, no, don't you'll die if you do that. And so she does. And I read that and I'm like, why would that kill someone? just sitting in the mine with dead people. I want to go figure this out. So me and a couple of friends went and uh, did a mound sitting inside a burial mound one night. And that was it. I was hooked after that. I was just like, oh my word, yes. This is definitely what I want to be doing. Like it was, it was a pretty intense experience. And it definitely made me think, yes, this is what, this is the right path. So I started to really dig into the heathen sources on magic and just kind of went from there, just developed this whole process of research, experimentation, taking into account my experiences and then, you know, kind of tweaking things. I think that's what makes your book so interesting is that it is very much an experimental journal almost. Like, you do have the end results of what you found so far, and you do have your historical sources, but there are also sections in the book where you're talking about how you initially went into the mound, how you practiced this to begin with, how you are basically learning through experimentation, which is not something you generally hear too often. I think most people think that's just crazy, honestly. And it has gotten me in some sticky situations before now, but... I think if we want to create, well, I don't, just to say one thing, like just to get this out of the way, I don't think it's possible to fully recreate historical magic. You know, there's just too many sort of um, variants that we can't actually know. All our sources are written from the uh, observer perspective as opposed to a practitioner perspective. But I think that we can actually take that observer perspective use it to create experiments and find our own ways of doing those types of magic that still have that kind of connection to the old, but are workable now in our modern day. And so that's kind of my focus there. And I I think a lot of people, it's a very reconstructionist focus in that way, but people, when they think about reconstructionism, they don't tend to think about applying it to magic. True. Reconstructionism is limited in that it doesn't necessarily allow for a living tradition. Mm. It's recreating past scenarios, but it doesn't really allow for adaptation all the time. Yeah, and that's one of my biggest problems with, um, because I used to be very into Reconstructionism. I was um, on the Austrian Lore Board back in like the 2000s. I was very much into that. But then I started to think about, okay, well, what about a living faith what about a living tradition what do living traditions have and at some point there's a conversation with the the, the holy powers in there and there's adaptation with the holy powers and i thought well that's what we need yeah I, I think a lot of people don't tend to think about it in terms of magic but i would argue that it is perfect the magic the the very like sort of methodology of it yeah you know, i mean when i was first coming into reconstructionism there was a story that people would talk about a long time, for a long time, people thought that the stories from medieval sources about archers, well, sources from Middle Ages about archers and their capabilities were made up because they didn't sound realistic compared with what modern archers were doing. 
But then some guy started to copy the paintings and he started to shoot as quickly and as accurately as, you know, people from Middle Ages were. Was this Mike Lodes? I don't remember. I don't remember. It's, it was one of those stories that was sort of like told in the Reconstructionist communities as like, a, this is why we do this. Because hmm. you can learn a lot from just doing a thing. You know, you can learn how feasible something is just by doing it. And that's, you know, that's where I was like, I looked at it. I'm like, you see all these theories about magic from the, the old, like the old sources, but how many people are actually doing it? How can you tell if it's actually feasible, given the activities that are described, unless you actually do it? So I think reconstruction is like the reconstructionist method is perfect for magic. And that's another interesting aspect of your book. And I think it's just because of how you were raised and what you already do on your in your own time is spinning and how closely that is associated with Freya and quite possibly with Seder. Well, I wouldn't say that it's closely associated with Freya. We only have like two sources really that link it with Freya. For some reason, a lot of modern heathens associate spinning with Frigga even though we only have like, you know, a constellation name Frigarok as any kind of older source on it, a lot of people tend to point to this painting of Frigga spinning clouds, which of course is like Victorian period. So that's not really anything we can take as a decent source. But Freya, we have two sources. The first one is in other parts of Scandinavia, Frigarok is called Freya Rock you know, like the uh, Orion's belts of Freya's distaff versus Frigga's distaff. And the second one is one of the binames of Freya, which is Hern, which is thought to derive from Her or Flax. So, you know, those are the only two, those are the only two sort of like hints of evidence that connect Freya with spinning. Now we do actually have accounts of spinning, save where people used spinning as the kind of magical mechanism in their seder. One is from a bigger saga. There was this woman called Katla and, you know, some, some bros rocked up at a farmstead, knocked on the door and were like, Hey, we're looking for your son. We're going to kill him. You know, we're going to search the, the place. And she's like, Oh no, her son came back and he's like, Oh my God. Oh my God. These people are going to kill me. So she's like, Hey, just shut up, sit there. And don't move. Don't say anything. Don't move. And so these guys, they knock at the door. Her servants go answer it. And she's spinning. They walk in the room. All they see is a distaff. They go from the place. They're riding away. They get to a certain point. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Is it possible that where we saw a distaff, that guy actually was? And that she used magic to kind of like pull the wool over our eyes. Mm. Well, there's a good saying, isn't it? Yes. Pull the wool over your eyes. And so, you know, they go back and eventually they figure it out. They they grab her. They put a sealskin bag over her head. And then they stone her to death. And they kill her son. So that's one account of save that involves spinning. Another potential one is from Lakstala Saga, where... You have this love triangle. Like Stella Saga's crazy. So you have this love triangle between this um, chick called Gudrun. Sorry, I can't pronounce Icelandic. Gudrun, um, Kjartan, and Botli. So Gudrun marries Botli, and she kind of like convinces Botli to kill Kjartan. And there's this one scene where he, he kills his, like Kjartan's his best friend. So this is a really heavy moment. So he kills his best friend. He comes back to the farmstead. She comes out and she's like, what time is it? 
and he's all messed up because he killed his best friend. She's like, what time is it? And he's like, it, it's noon, it's 12. And so she's like, um, she says, 12 L's of what? Like, I have, I have spun 12 L's of Wadmel. Or like something like, um, she makes a statement that also compares his act of killing Kyatan with her act of spinning. Mm. All right. And then she throws out this like 12 L's of Wadmel thing, which parallels the time of day as well. Now, here's the thing about the 12 L's of Wadmel. An audience at the time would have heard that and thought, wait, that's not right. Because I once worked it out, you would need two and a half thousand yards to three something thousand yards of wool Whoa. in order to, pro- to in order to produce enough yarn to um, to weave that much wadmal. Now, taking into account that the um, the wadmal was probably an L wide, which is about eighteen inches, so 12 18 inch chunks, it would be about two and a half to three and a half thousand yards of wool which she apparently spun that day. Families in the Andes who still habitually spin, the entire family will produce, I think it's like, um, I think it's something like 2,000, no, a pound, they'll spin a pound of yarn a day. All right, and they'll get quite a lot of yarn out of it. They'll probably get like roughly that, but that's an entire family in a whole day. You know, there is no way she could have spun up all of that and then woven it together to make the wadmal. Hmm. So that would have been a huge red flag to people listening to it, kind of like in a similar way as, um, you know, when you hear Scarborough Fair, you know, make me a cambric shirt without any stitches or needlework, without any seams or needlework. It's one of those kind of impossible things. So that's another possible spun save example. And again, in the fight, when you read the description, Botley is almost robotic. He's like, people are saying, what, what the hell is wrong with you? You know, he doesn't seem to be in his right mind. So, you know, you kind of think, well, was Gudrun doing it? And then after the whole thing, she kind of turns around to him and says, well, you know, at least I know you'll never work against me now after today. So she finishes it with a threat. Like, you know not to mess with me. After what happened today, you know not to mess with me. So it's, it's a very interesting story. Other people point to the etymology of save. There's um, the etymology, it's... The cognate forms, because you have cognate forms in Old English as well, the um, Old High German, they pretty securely refer to string, cord, halter. And then if you go back into the sort of like um, the etymology of it, it goes back to, I think it's Proto-Indo-European, soitu, meaning to bind. And then that all kind of, I think that all plays into wider Indo-European ideas on spinning and fate which you see in the Greek Morai, but you don't see in the the Norse Norns. So the, there's a lot of sort of like changes that have happened between those cultures over the years. So, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling now. No, that's quite all right. I was just in the process also thinking of the correlation, and it's definitely a very different time period, but the association with the Grimm's fairy tale of Rumpelstiltskin with spinning and magical spinning I suppose it's always been this Germanic, Indo-European area type association. And it seems like it lasted for quite a while. I, I would say, yeah. Oh, I would say, yeah. Um, they used to, um, even into like the 1600s, they would, like German artists were depicting witches riding distaffs. And, um, you know, the, the spindle was, according to Elder Heider in his paper, Spun Save, Spinning Save, um, the spindle was a symbol of the witch in Germany back in those times. You um, 
that's another point as well. The the staff that they've found that potentially belong to save workers to Volor, they they probably they, they some of them the ones with a cage formation actually look very similar to the distaffs that they had back then. So that's another potential connection. But yeah, spinning has long been this uh, this magically associated craft. If anyone is interested in this, I recommend this paper by someone called Miriam Mensage. It's called Connecting Threads, and it's it's free. You can get it from the uh, Folklore Journal for free. If you just, you know, sort of like put it into Google, she comes up right away. And that's M-I-R-Y-A-M, Mensage, M-E-N-C-E-J. It's a really, really interesting examination. She goes into the connections between spinning and the otherworldly as well and fairies and how in some cultures the dead appear as balls of yarn. Oh, that's bizarre. It is. Like little balls of yarn that leave bloodstains. Isn't huh. that cute? <laughs> well, uh, for the, our listeners, I will look that up and link to it in the show notes. Personally, I would like to ask you about one of the most fascinating types of magic that I found in your book and in the Icelandic sagas, and that is going under the cloak. Oh my god, I love that. <laughs> and I, I see a correlation between that and possibly sitting in the mounds, or even as you were talking about earlier about mound sitting, how you are creating this liminal space that separates you from the everyday world. Yeah, I've... I've kind of like been batting that theory around for a while that like maybe the cloak is sort of simulating the mound you know kind of closing you off from uh, everything else in a similar way to I mean when you think about what the word hell means hell is coverer so you know this whole idea of being covered and with the best guess for what going under under the mound was I agree with um Jan Neville Abelsteinson on this one I think it was a way of contacting or interacting with the dead and the sort of like unseen dimensions of a land so you know that to me makes perfect sense the whole you go into the mound you go under the cloak in order to have that interaction that does make a lot of sense especially in relation to the story about the christianization of iceland yeah oh yeah because the law speaker would have been contacting the spirits of the dead who founded Iceland to work out how to deal with the pressures that they were feeling from, it was Denmark, I believe? Norway. I think it was Norway. It was a Norwegian king. Um, they had some hostages from the, uh, they had some Icelandic hostages. So you had a whole bunch of people who were scared that, you know, oh my God, am I going to see my family members again? You had an, like, probably about half of a community who were Christian and they were threatening to declare themselves out of law with everybody else. And, you know, as you know, from reading the the sagas, the law was the thing that kept everyone together. It was like, it was how the community was sort of bound together. So to declare yourself out of law for a group of people to do that, that would have been a huge deal. That would have been the end of the Icelandic free state, really. And then the history of Iceland would have been so much different. Yeah, it, it's this hugely weighty moment in that period of Icelandic history. And, and you have this this strange ritual just at the heart of it. That And it, it's so fascinating. And for those who haven't read the sagas, the law speaker during the all thing steps away and goes under the cloak for a certain amount of time. Do you recall offhand how long it was? 
I think it was a day and a night, and he instructed people not to speak his name while he was doing it. And then when that time period elapsed, he came back out and he declared that Iceland, for all intents and purposes, would be Christian on the surface, but how people worship and who they worship in their own homes would be up to them. Yeah. And here's another thing about like Thorgeir, the law speaker, a lot of people don't really go into, but that, again, Jan Neffel Adelsteinson goes into. He he wrote the, the best book on this. It's called Under the Cloak. I think it's a, a pagan ritual turning point in... I don't know. It's just called Under the Cloak. I never remember the subtitles. <laughs> um, it's very hard to get nowadays. It's actually super expensive now, but if you can ever find it for cheap, get this book. He really pulls it apart, The whole, all the political situation around it. He pulls apart he, uh, Thorgeir's family background. He Because Thorgeir comes from this really kind of weird family. His, um, his son was known as someone who dreamed prophetically, and also, I think his parent, he has like he had like Sama lineage. I'm not quite sure, but whenever you see somebody being referred to as having Sama lineage, there's ten- there tends to be a hint that oh, there's something magical here. So he had that in his background. So again, this to me, this this adds to the interest of his his actions at the all thing. You know, he he's he's not just a guy who goes under the cloak. He's the guy who both sides trusts. Both sides trust. Despite that lineage, you know, the Christians and the pagans trusted him and they came to go under the cloak. The, this is, it, it's just a deeply interesting sort of incident to me. And it's not the only account of going under the cloak either. You see the Icelandic cloak featuring in, you know, a few forms of magic. Well, a few accounts of magic. I don't remember the guy's name, but um, there's a story of... This guy, he goes to this this hall and he's sitting on a on a seat on the dais and he's muttering into his cloak, and then he tells like the the this woman is trying to test him. Where is this stuff that I hid earlier? So he tells her where that is, and then he's like, also, those kids there are really yours. They're not really the the thralls' kids. So, uh, yeah, I know you hid that about the parentage too. So you see these kind of like these little incidences of cloak related magic and people kind of muttering into cloaks or using like the darkness in some way that you would get under a cloak. Again, Adelsteinson, he relates it to sort of like the, the practices of Irish poets or Philly. They, um, they would go like they compose poems in the dark, like well, they sit in the dark and then they come out and then they get the flash of inspiration. You know, he compares it with that. And you also see Egil Skallagrimson, he's like, you know, under his cloak and people are like, oh, are you composing a poem? It seemed to have been common enough that people recognized that someone under their cloak was probably doing something interesting. Something I noticed in your book is that you don't list runes as a specific type of magic. No, I don't. I agree that they do seem to be more of a specific magical tool, but at the same time, Odin referring to specific runes as types of magic that he knows, I think is an interesting thing, but it's also only seen in Havmal. So I have a few thoughts on this, and these are, it kind of goes to why I didn't include the runes. First of all, we don't actually know which runes Odin was referring to in the Havamal. Our historical evidence of room magic it's not an open and shut thing and quite frankly the historical side of room magic is outside of my purview 
you know, the room magic that I do is modern room magic. You know, it's got its roots in, unfortunately, the sort of, when you dig down into it, unfortunately, the roots are in um, folkish mystics in Hitler era Germany. I root my practice in the mythological stories, you know, because rooting in history and rooting in mythology are two different things, I think. I think we can do either or. But it it was just outside of the purview of my book, really. That's why I didn't cover it. And when you get to the historical room magic, it was outside of my sort of like area of knowledge, really. Also, I prefer working with the Elder Futhark and the actual historical stuff is younger. If that does interest you, though, Anne Grower, she has a really good book on the younger Futhark called Long Branches, I think. Okay. So Anne Grower Sheffield is who you should look up for the historical younger Futhark. Excellent. A lot more accessible than Louis Jenga or um, any of the other scholars out there, I think. And anytime I can get recommendations on really anything heathen related to the Futhark, it's always a mixed bag because you never know what the motivations of the author were. Yeah, yeah. And that that is a problem with modern room magic. The history of it, it it's sketchy people after sketchy people, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, we're at a point where generations of runesters have come up now. We've had a revival since the 70s. We're now 50 years in. Well, probably more than that. You know, if we go back to, unfortunately, another Nazi, Rudd Mills, we're, we're talking the early 1900s. You know, so the revival has been going on for a long time. And we've had generations of runesters kind of come up who aren't racist assholes. Unfortunately, a lot of the sketchy people write the books. <laughs> um, right. Which is why I'm always like sort of poking at Lonnie Scott and saying, look, go write that book. You need to be writing this book, Lonnie. This is totally your thing. All right. We've got all these sketchy people, but I think that we're kind of at a point where, you know, in in heathenry, we're kind of at a point where we finally have something approaching a coherent, inclusive movement. It's actually got its own identity now. And after being in heathenry for so long, it's like the first time I have felt that. That's excellent. Yeah, I actually have hope now. (laughs) And you've also been reading and, I guess, reviewing upcoming books for other authors. I have. Well, not on runes. Well, no, no, but heathenry in general. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've, um... I've I've had a couple come past my uh, my workspace this past week. First one was I reviewed and helped proofread a few sections of Winifred Hodge's upcoming book on heathen soul lore. Her work is amazing. I'm just I I think that this book is going to be so impactful and just it's going to help to shape heathenry in the years to come, I think. I think it's just groundbreaking. You can read her work on her website, heathensoullore.net. But I don't read deep things from websites particularly well, so I'm very excited to get a physical copy of a book. So that that's really wonderful. I was reading it and thinking, oh my God, oh my God. You know, she her stuff disagrees with my stuff about the uh, Hygge and the Modsefa. But, you know, I think she's more right than I am. Oh, wow. And I'm fine with saying that. I'm not even mad. <laughs> because it's so good I'm not even mad and quite frankly I'd rather see people kicking that can further down the road than I don't want to get precious about this stuff I just want to see us do better and get better 
you know, so seeing her come out with this amazing work and I'm just like, yes, yes, I don't even care that I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, that that's the first book. And the second book was uh, Loki and Sijin. That's coming out next year, um, Loki and Sijin by Leah Svensson. And I laughed my head off reading this book. It's hilarious. I couldn't think of a better book for someone to write about Loki, honestly. she um, The way she describes the stories in the lore and her explorations of ethics and accountability and responsibility, very, very good, again. And she actually includes a, a miniature history of the modern heathen revival, which is a subject I don't think we talk about enough. I think one of the biggest problems with modern heathenry is that we focus so much on the older history. We don't look at the newer history. So we're not really paying attention to where the bits and bobs that we consider mainstream heathenry come from and where they have their roots. I mean, like the nine noble virtues, they come from sketchy people. (laughs) And they're based in this very individualist idea. So... I think things like that we need to kind of take a look at and be like, do we really want to keep this stuff? (laughs) Maybe there's better stuff out there that is uh, more inclusive and uh, more healthy and more sustainable for in the future. You know, because I want I want a heathenry that is is inclusive and hail. I want something that's healthy and homemaking for my child to to carry on into the world and you know, sort of like teach her children if she has any. Absolutely. And I think seeing these like these new authors coming out with this stuff is just so wonderful. Absolutely brilliant. Especially the the history of modern heathenry. We have something similar to that for Druidry with Dr. Ronald Hutton. And I believe he did one on modern witchcraft as well. If it wasn't him, it was it was another author. I, I believe it was Triumph of the Moon was the title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, Hutton. So... Seeing this for heathenry will be, I believe, really eye-opening for a lot of people. It's also in uh, our Trove Volume 1, the new edition. Oh! They really get into the weeds. I I read it and I was just like, yes, good job, Mr. Wagoner. Good job. (laughs) I'll have to check that out. I know they just recently did the new edition, correct? Yes. Yes. And the, uh, the second book of our Trove is coming out next week, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah, if, if you're going to Trove Moot, first of all, I'm going to be doing a class there. They're going to be unleashing our Trove Volume 2 into the world. Oh my. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely something to check out then. Oh yeah. Moving on, do you have any advice for newbies out there? Oh god, that's a, that's a really difficult question because I think heathenry is like the worst of the uh, various sort of like neo-pagan paths. I hate that term, but you know what I mean, right? Everybody knows what you mean. I think it's probably one of the worst to get into. I think my advice is to keep your own counsel, okay? There are always going to be people who tell you that you're wrong, that you're an idiot, but the first two rules of heathenry that you should know are one, you're not the boss of me, and two, you're wrong. (laughs) So um, just kind of keep those in mind. If you wind up in a community where people are very dogmatic, get the hell out. They're, they're not good places to be. You won't find good people there. You, you'll probably find a lot of stress, if anything. The Trove. I used to be in The Trove in like 2008, 2009. And it was a very different org to what it is now. I'm in The Trove again and I am super impressed. So join The Trove. I know a lot of people have opinions on that. 
But like I said, it's a very different org and the conversations we have in the Trove group and the level of support that there is for members, you know, and how constructive it is versus destructive, I think is a really good place for new people to grow in a helpful way. I'm, I'm glad to hear that because that is initially why I never joined. Like I said, you know, it's changed a lot. I've not seen any fights in there yet. <laughs> I've been a member for almost a year now. There's been a lot of, well, how can we th- fix this? How can we work on this? Oh, this is cool. Oh, I, I live in Japan. I'm going to go get a butsuden for like, you know, my shrine to put like my statues of gods in. Can anybody think of any problems? No. And then it turns into a really interesting conversation about the parallels between different shrines in different cultures. You know, it's... Oh, wow. It, yeah, it's super cool. <laughs> it, it goes from really interesting places. And then, like I said, you've, you have people like Winifred Hodge who are producing, you know, some really amazing stuff. You have Ben Wagoner who is herding all the cats with various Artro <laughs> editions. You know, it, it's very exciting. It's a very exciting place to be nowadays. For, for newbies, I think it's it's a good place. And we actually have had a few newbies kind of like crop up recently and say, okay, I'm new, what do I do? And then people are like, hey, this is, this is the things you might want to read. Speaking of new books for new people, I think Patricia LaFayle's book is really good for new people. Um, I think it's like Practical Heathen's Guide to Ossetru. I believe so, yes. I'm terrible with book titles. I, I have to look up my own book title so many times. <laughs> well, it's funny. I can I can picture the, the cover of that book in my mind, but I can't really recall the title itself. <laughs> right. That's a, that's a really good book for beginners. There's also Morgan Daimler's bringing a book out next year. Yes. And it's about the Norse pantheon. I think that that book and also Patricia's book in conjunction would be a really good sort of um, grounding for baby heathens. And Morgan's pagan portal books on the individual deities are also excellent. Yes. Oh, Morgan is a fantastic person just in general. Oh, yes. (laughs) I I stalked them around Iceland. It was great. I uh, did an interview, I believe it was the first interview of season two with Morgan. And unfortunately, due to the events around the Capitol, mm. the interview changed into heathenry and depictions of heathenry in less than upstanding yeah. situations. Yeah, that, that was a wild, <laughs> that was a wild day. Oh my word. Um, We live like 20 miles from DC. Mm-hmm. So we were watching it on TV, just like, oh my God, we pack bags and try to get the hell out before like the beltway gets crazy. Because you always read about these historical events where people didn't get out in time. And and I feel like like all of the trial that's going around that now is going to, to some degree, hurt at least the view of heathenry too, because I believe yeah. the, the shaman gentleman is, and I say that with <laughs> air quotes for sure, I believe his defense is mental incompetency. Nah, man. Which does not cast heathenry in a good light. Nah, man. He knew what he was doing. Absolutely. But this is, I've been saying this for years. We heathens, we need to be facing up to our far right elements years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, like there was a long time where people just kind of turned a blind eye. If we're going to be real, there was a long time when people just turned a blind eye and were kind of like, not my business, not my community. Those people are doing their thing over there. But this is a problem. We're all interconnected. You know, there is no such thing as those people doing that thing over there that will never affect us. They It will eventually. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that 2016 was the first time I saw people 
kind of starting to take it really seriously in a mainstream heathen kind of way. You know, before that, it was like shouting at people and getting told you were historical for bringing it up. But then, you know, a certain org came out of the 1488 closet in a way that nobody could really write off. And that was that. I honestly don't understand the reference to that. So, oh, the AFA posted on Facebook in 2016 that they they basically were like, you know, we are here for white people. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can send you a screenshot of it. It was uh, pretty, pretty obvious. You know, the, the whole 1488 thing is 14 words, which is something that David Lane coined. And it's, we, I think it's like we must protect the future of white babies or something. I don't remember exactly. Good Lord. But Steve McNallan then boiled it down into nine words, which, because of course, nine, got to be heathen. Oh, yeah. And I think, I think it was like, you know, the future of something is non-negotiable or something. You see them writing it all over the show. It's this like slogany thing that they they use, and mm. that that's where that had its roots. Well, that's nice. That's hmm. I hate ending the interview on a negative note like that. Y- yeah, no. Let's have a better end. So the book that Morgan is working on, the Pantheon for the Norse Pantheon, is there any other all-encompassing book on the Pantheon that you can think of? No, I can't. It's not in the same way, no. There have obviously been books that have covered the different deities, but I've endorsed Morgan's book, so full disclaimer here. I I read it and I endorsed it. Mm -hmm. I honestly think it's one of the best books I've seen for beginners. That's excellent. Yeah, I mean, what they do now is is predominantly associated with the fairies, Mm -hmm. but, you know, they they have a a lot of experience in heathenry as well. And they do still, you know, have interactions with heathen beings. So they they do know the field, so to speak. And a lot of the information that they put in there is really good because it warns new people of the various fault lines and how to avoid them. Mm. Because, I mean, how many times do you get a new person coming in and they say the wrong thing or they hit against like a, a sort of argument or debate that's been happening in the community for a long time, but they didn't know? Morgan's book really goes into that. Excellent. Yeah, it is very good in that way. And then, you know, like I said, kind of like mixing it with Patty's book. That's a good foundation for uh, for new people, I think. Well, do you have any parting words before we sign off here? Be excellent to each other. <laughs> that is great advice. Be, be nice. Remember that we're all interconnected. Just uh, try to live good, whole-making lives. Cat's book, Elves, Witches, and Gods, is now available through Llewellyn Publications. You can find more of her work on sayohelrune.com. Links to all the articles and books mentioned in the interview will be listed in the show notes. I want to thank all of my patrons who help make this show a reality, especially those who pledge at the highest tier, like Samantha Shaver. I've also added a reward for every patron who donates as little as $1 per month the Esoteric Book Club Footnotes, a standalone mini-episode that can be heard from your Patreon page. Until next time, remember, stay weird. <laughs>